Welcome back to Inspire Change with the Mullen Rivers podcast. And today is episode 54 with ex-CEO of PepsiCo, one of the most influential women in the world, Indra Nui. She started her journey in India and became one of the most successful CEOs of all time in the United States of America. A story of an immigrant who became a CEO of a Fortune 500 company was unheard of and her story is a absolute beacon of light to so many people who want to have that kind of impact on the world. For me this was really exciting to go down to Indra's offices to speak to her to see the history I guess of her career. She had trophies, awards, memorabilia, uh, people who absolutely adorned her from the biggest celebrities in the world, to presidents, to prime ministers, they love this woman because of the impact that she had in the business world. And for me, to have the privilege to sit down with somebody like Indra Nui and deliver this episode to you guys was amazing. Please take out your notepads and pens if you're not driving for this episode because there's so much to learn from her. And one of the lessons I just want to highlight to listen out for is it's never too late and you're never too advanced to learn keep learning stay learning and that is one of the parts of this show is to share inspirational stories and lessons and i wanted to ask you guys again i'm going to keep badgering you guys we are in the process of launching officially the podcast it will be in addition to our interviews and i want to have a podcast set up where we have our guests come to the podcast and we have these conversations And I want to know what you guys think. Should we call it the Inspire Change podcast, the Inspire Change show with Jordan Mulligan, the Inspire Change, whatever? Should we keep it as Mulligan Rivers? My thinking is that a wider audience will be reached with Inspire Change, hosted by Jordan Mulligan or hosted by the Mulligan Rivers, but I'm not 100% sure. And you guys listen to the show. You guys aren't coming through um, YouTube right now. This is coming through your speakers and... I want to know what you think. So let me know at Jordan Mulligan River on Instagram. I'll keep an eye out on my inbox. Today's video was made possible by, as always on the podcast, by MulliganRivers.com, where we're having an end of summer sale. It will be over shortly. It's buy one, get one free across all t-shirts, hoodies, hoodie vests, using code sale at checkout. And also the Not A Journal Success Journal, my favorite thing in the whole world, is also on sale. And the Momentum Mori poster, a poster to remind you that you're going to die, is also on sale. Before that, let's dive into this amazing episode with the ex-CEO of PepsiCo teaching you business lessons. Let's dive into it. For those who don't know, just introduce yourself and what you do. My name is Indra Nui. Um, I was born in India and came to the United States in 1978 to go to business school. And between 1980 and 2006, I steadily rose through corporate America, became CEO of PepsiCo, the global food and beverage company in 2006. I became chairman and CEO in 2007 and served in that role for about 12 years. In 2018, I retired as CEO of PepsiCo and in 2019 as chairman of PepsiCo. And now I'm happily retired, sit on boards, I teach uh, in various places, and I do all the stuff I've always wanted to do but didn't have the time to do. Growing up in India, what was that like if you were to describe it to an American or English audience? The best way to talk about my growing up is to first put it in context. 
I was born in India eight years after India got independence. So India was under British rule, British occupation for 350 years. And India was given independence in 1947. So India was a newly emerging country. And uh, it was just beginning to get its sea legs. And in those days, where I grew up, especially in the south of India and Madras, uh, women didn't work. Women didn't go to college. Uh, they perhaps went to high school, but after that, they got married and had families. And the only women who worked were those who were teachers or nurses, maybe a few doctors, but that's really the only women that worked outside the home. So I was born into a very, very progressive family uh, where my father and grandfather basically said, the girls in the family are going to be treated exactly like the boys are being treated. So we're going to let you guys study as much as you want, as long as you get good grades. We're going to let you do whatever you want. Fly, soar, dream. We're not going to hold you back because of your gender. So in many ways, in a conservative India that was just beginning to discover itself, our family broke all the rules by allowing the girls to go off and do what they wanted to do. So in a way, I won the lottery of life. So while I was being asked to dream and soar on the one hand, my mother, who was a product of that culture, very brilliant woman, who would have been CEO had she been allowed to study, had to live within the norms of society. So she would say, I'm getting him married off at age 18. So she had that pressure from society to find a husband for us and get us married off. So it felt like there was one foot on the brake and one foot on the accelerator at all times. But I think deep down inside, she wanted to be a CEO to whatever that meant. She wanted to do something meaningful. And she lived her life vicariously through my sister and myself. So this combination of the brake and accelerator allowed us to thrive, allowed us to do whatever we wanted to do. And the two of us, my sister and I, went off and got uh, you know, a high school diploma, a college degree, a master's degree, and began to work. So it was a wonderful upbringing in a tight family that was bound by all of the uh, history and the culture of you know, Hindu India. At the same time, progressive parents who said, Go on, give it a try. It's wonderful as well. I've just, I'm, I'm on chapter seven of the book mm -hmm. and those first few chapters are really wonderful to, to hear your story and your family story. I, I will dive a little bit more into that, but why were your father and your grandfather so open to that? So, so wanting you guys to uh, have an equal shot as your brothers did? I had one younger brother who was born eight years after me, so, you know, a kid brother. But the two sisters were born a year apart, my older sister and myself. And my grandfather, who was a uh, judge under the British regime, always felt that the country would move ahead only if men and women, the most talented people, contributed to the country. He did not think that only half the country should be engaged in paid work. His belief was anybody who was capable of studying and moving ahead, should be uh, pressed into the service for country, for the country. And so his belief was education is the foundation of any um, uh, success for a country, and the girl should not be held back. And so not only did he make a study and insisted on paying for it himself, he would spend hours coaching us, tutoring us. So if we had any trouble with any subject, he was always there. And trouble defined as... If you got 85 or 90 in a subject and not 95 or 100, he would be there saying, let me figure out how to improve your performance. So he was not just a financier. He was the mentor, the coach, the guide, 
the protector, everything. How, how far did that belief stretch? Was he saying to you at the time, Indra, one day you're going to be capable of becoming a CEO? Was there limits to that or did that grow yourself? Nobody knew what a CEO was those days because in my family, nobody was in business. They were bank officials, lawyers, doctors. That's about it. Engineers, a few of them. So the word working in business, CEO, never entered anybody's uh, vernacular. So he would never tell me, you know, you could be CEO. Although he did say to me that when I was born, your horoscope was cast. In India, we cast these detailed horoscopes. Uh, When he cast my horoscope, he was an astrologer himself. When he cast my sister and my both are horoscopes, he said, this is an unusual horoscope. You're going to go places. I don't know what they are, but you're going to go places. And I'm not going to hold you back. You know, you spoke about at the start of the introduction that you worked your way up through corporate America. Was it just those small steps to eventually becoming CEO or did you have a belief earlier on? You know, my belief was always I can do the job I'm doing. That's all I did. I was very, very focused on doing the job I was given very, very well, better than anybody else. Um, You know, I honestly believe, Jordan, that if you have a long-term plan and you're working towards it, if any uh, move does not, you know, uh, deliver exactly on plan, you get disappointed. And my point of view was focus on what you're doing very well. Don't have a long-term plan and let events take their course. And if you ask, if you'd asked me in 2002, are you going to become CEO of PepsiCo? I'd have said, I have no clue and I don't care. So the real issue is, I would say this more generally, everybody, just focus on what you're doing. Dream, but focus on what you're doing. Don't let the dreams sort of cloud what you have to do today. That's another thing through your story. I think that there's things that you did extremely well that may not have been relevant to your job. And then you arrived at PepsiCo and you're talking about you're using your chemistry mm-hmm. and, and achieve it, like doing things that you uh, were doing chemistry class in Pepsi in a completely different role as well. So like it all added up at some point, but how do you tell, especially you know, the young people of today that they're not wasting their time doing something really well, even if it might not be relevant to a future goal? You know, in life, when you start to get educated through some college, school and college system, you learn a lot of building block skills, whether it's math and science or the way you think or logic or being curious and connecting dots. Um, don't just say that I have to have a job that connects exactly what I learned because life is not a linear progression. Um, Take all these building blocks and build on them. I mean, you constantly have to build on those foundational skills that you learned in college. And as you go into a job, add a few more blocks to this foundation that you learned. And as you go along, you're building this house. But people think that when they left college, all the learning is done and the house should have been built. Au contraire. All that you've done is laid down a foundation when you graduate from college. And then you build the house slowly, literally and figuratively as you go along. But if you don't buy those bricks, find the concrete, hold the bricks together and start to build the house, you will never get a house. So for me, having that curiosity, the desire to learn and adding a skill, adding a knowledge base constantly to my repertoire was critically important. So it's not raw chemistry. It's taking the chemistry and saying, how do I apply it? It's not raw math. It's how do you take math, apply it to finance, think about you know, financial economics differently. It's how do you create a different arc as you go along. The idea of being a leader and being in leadership roles 
and have it understanding something like chemistry. And I know you went to experts after that, so you would hire the best of the best mm. for those roles, but you had an understanding so you could articulate to these people. Is that an important skill to have when being in a leadership role? I think the biggest mistake leaders make today is that they don't get into the details. You know, there used to be a statement long time ago which said, brief the top, train the bottom. I think that's changed. It's now train the top as much as you train the bottom because the top approves so many things. You've got to know what it is you're approving. You've got to know how it's going to land on the company. You've got to know how it's going to change the nature of work, how you, uh, you know, look at the cost structure. All of that has to be thought through. So I'd say that CEOs, people in the C-suite, all senior leadership have to spend as much time learning what the organization is learning what the organization is doing, get into the details. You don't have to do what they're doing, but understand what they're doing in great detail. So when they come to you with an idea, you don't just rubber stamp it because you're in a senior position. You rubber stamped it because, first of all, you have a great team and you know that they've come to you with the right thing, but you also understand what they came to you with. You know how it's going to land in your organization. And if things go wrong, you know how to get in there and get it fixed. And I think that's very, very important. Completely. And, you know, the frustration among, you know, being an employee myself as well at times, the frustration of having that from from higher ups where they don't understand what you're doing. And, and it's just it, it, it can be really frustrating to be in that role and create a really bad environment for creative thinkers, you know, people who, who are going to progress that company for you as well. Although, you know, I must say one thing. Sometimes I wonder why senior people don't have that desire to learn what people are doing, because there's actually like, it's like a childlike curiosity. Go and see what are they doing? Why, how are they doing it? What are their challenges? What uh, roadblocks can I remove so they can do their job even better? That should be part of every senior leader's DNA. Why they don't have it, I don't know. And if they don't have it, how the hell did they become a senior leader? That's something I don't know either. But I think it's actually fun to be curious. It's a fun thing to learn. It's a fun thing to go ask people to teach me, teach you their job. Very often I'd go on route rides with route salesmen in PepsiCo and I'd say, teach me how to be a route salesman. Tell me how you do the job from 3 a.m. in the morning to 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Tell me how you pick up the order. Tell me how you, you know, load up the truck. Walk me through the whole process. Because once I learn what they're doing, it gives me a better appreciation for how the rubber meets the road at PepsiCo. And that's what makes the job so gratifying. That, again, sorry, I keep referring back to the book, you know, it's so fresh in my mind, but one of the things that was so refreshing to hear was that you were developing flavor. You know, you were, you were doing that part of the process and it speaks to the passion of, of doing the job. Um, it was, and it, yeah, it was really lovely to see that, that you did that amongst all of the companies that you worked for as well. I can't remember the, it slips my mind, the first company you worked for, which one was it? The... Oh, Metro Beard Cell. Yes, yeah. yeah. And you were so integrally involved in all the processes. It wasn't just, um, you know, pushing paper around. Like you were trying, you were on the floor rearranging all the cupboards and stuff. It's such a wonderful story to hear. Well, you know, it's like if you are going to launch new fabrics, Mm -hmm. you've got to know the limits of your manufacturing process. You've got to know the limits of your printing process. So you've got to have some idea of designing for manufacturing. So you can design products and prints only if you can manufacture it. 
So you've got to understand the process so that you can now go back and say, no, don't try this complicated stuff because we can't manufacture it today. Maybe we can tomorrow. We'll remove constraints. But today, this, these are the limits of what we can do. So you've got to understand the process to be able to you know, create the right product or design and then push it back into the process. To me, these are all, again, critical building blocks before you can actually do your job in a holistic way. That's where the breakdown is as well. You know, when, when you don't understand it, like you say, if you ask for a design to be done and you, you, you know, you instruct a team to do a design and they go to the manufacturers and they're like, we can't do this. Right. With your integrity, like the understanding of everything, and I think that is missing, you know, where frustrations come up and slowdown of company comes, comes in when these processes from the top aren't understood at all. But, you know, John, there's another important point here. The reason you have to understand this is because you have to ask the right questions. If you don't understand the processes, you don't know how to ask the right questions. You're never going to run those manufacturing lines, but you've got to ask your operations head the right questions. And the only way to ask the right questions is if you understand the process. Otherwise, you have no idea what questions to ask. So let's, let's go back. Let's go back to so the, the earlier days. How did you make the step? I know this is a long story that we're asking to be condensed into such a small space, but how did you make the step from, from education and getting into business and, until the point that you was in corporate America? So I was one of the few people in India. My sister and I were perhaps a handful of you know, 20 people from India, 20 women in India, who were admitted to the business schools in India. My sister went to a very prestigious business school on the West Coast, and I went to the other prestigious school on the East Coast. India only had about four business schools at that time. You write a very competitive exam, and you get in. Once my sister got in, I had to do the same because I was competitive with her. So I managed to get into the school in Calcutta. And once you graduate from those schools, you get grabbed by companies because uh, there were so few business graduates. And in any class, only five women graduated, 100 guys and five women. And so I was one of the five women in my class. And um, I went to work for Metro Beardsall, which is really a British uh, textile company, Tootles, of Manchester. And um, I worked in that company for a while, loved the job, until there was a South Indian mill strike that shut down the business. There was nothing to sell because the, all the mills were on strike. So I was recruited then by Johnson & Johnson to work on their feminine protection products. I learned a lot doing that. I mean, brand new, uh, you know, feminine protection. To talk about it was taboo in India at that time. So how do you market a product that's essential for giving women freedom? At the same time, it's sold under the counter in a retail store. You can't advertise it. So I learned a whole bunch of influence marketing in a different way. But at that time, a lot of my friends from college and people I knew in the city of Madras had left India to come to the United States. At that time, the U.S. was the beacon of hope and dreams and aspirations and innovation and entrepreneurship. And there was a mass brain drain of the best talent to the U.S. And they kept writing to me saying, you've got to come here. This place is so like you. You love music. You love sports. You love creation. You know, we're all having a ball. You should come. So I said, look, let me see First, whether my parents will allow me to go. Second, whether I'll get admitted to a college or a graduate program. And three, if I'll get any aid. Because remember, we can't afford to pay for a college education in uh, the U.S. So I was sort of uh, in the U.S. library, uh, U.S. consulate library, flipping through magazines. And I found an article about this new school that had opened up at Yale called the Yale School of Management, which linked the public and private sector. Talked about the role of business and society. 
how the public, private, and non-profit sectors have to work together. And it was uh, referred to as a, a wonderful experiment, but a necessary experiment in business education. So I decided to apply to that on a whim. I just said, let me just apply and see what happens. They waived my application fee because I couldn't afford that either because remember, I haven't told my parents about it. So I applied and didn't think I'd get in. Then this letter shows up in the mail saying I got in. So I went to my parents and said, hey, I got into the Yale School of Management. And they said, good, put that letter away and go back and do what you're doing because we can't afford to send you. Okay, two weeks later, I get another letter. We're going to give you a third of the money in scholarships, a third of the money in sort of a work-study program, and another third is a loan. And uh, we'd like you to come to Yale. So now, like, I can do this myself. I don't need money. All that I need is an air ticket, which I had enough savings I could pay for it. And um, I can go, but my parents aren't going to let me go. So I go and broach the subject to my father and my mother. My grandfather had passed away. I said, I've gotten in with aid. I don't need money from you. I have savings for an air ticket. Um, can I go? And then started this huge discussion at home. Should we or should we not? And I think my father won out. He said, if this had been our son, we would have let him go. So why should we hold her back? She's not married. How can I let her go, says my mother. Then let's find her a guy and get her married. And I say, no, not, not a chance in hell. I don't want to get married now. So they allowed me to go to the U.S., which I was surprised by, Jordan. I'll be very honest with you. It took a lot of courage on the part of my mother, in particular, to say go. They came to the airport, saw me off. And uh, it was a very bittersweet moment because they knew that this daughter of theirs was going 8,000 miles across the oceans. And they won't see me for a while except, you know, occasional phone calls. In those days, we didn't have the cell phone, right? You had to book a telephone call and make a telephone call. It's very complex to make an international call. So they knew that they wouldn't see me regularly. But uh, it was a brave act on their part to send me across the oceans. And I came to Yale and the rest is history. <laughs> What's the reality of those early days? Because you worked a job, you were in education, you, you, had, you had that really strong work ethic all the way through. Uh, we, we call that the grind, like the, the, the grind process, like that really difficult time. Like, could you explain your reality at that time, like when it was, you know, really difficult, um, you know, facing, you know, you weren't getting three, $3 an hour, something like that at one point. Like it was, you know, it was a difficult time period. What was that like? So when I landed in Yale in the United States, that's the first time I'd left India. So to me, everything was alien. And in those days, they didn't have a well-developed structure to support international students. This was 1978. So there isn't a structure to support international students. And this was also the days of no wheels on suitcases. Can you believe there was actually a time when we, suitcases didn't have wheels? So I show up at Yale with these two giant suitcases filled with stuff, completely irrelevant for the US. I don't even know why I packed what I did. And they process me and they say, walk those six blocks to your dorm. And I have these two heavy suitcases and I'm not going to spend a penny on a cab because I have so little money to live on. So I carry these two suitcases six inches at a time. And after a few hours, I reach the dorm and I settle in and desperate loneliness stepped in because there were, nobody else had come into the dorm. I was all alone. I didn't know what to buy in the grocery store because I never shopped in a grocery store, which was a self-help grocery store. So it was all alien to me. Um, I was a vegetarian. There was hardly anything to eat for a vegetarian. Now, 
Vegetarianism is very common now, but in those days, everything was meat. I never had cheese or pizza before, so there were pizza places galore, but I didn't know what it was. And so I was completely lost those early days, completely lost, until some international students actually stepped in and taught me how to shop in a grocery store, how to open a bank account, because those days you have to go to the bank, open a bank account, and get a mailbox, because there were no emails those days. Everything came in the post, so you had to have a mailbox in the post office. They taught me how to open a mailbox. Um, they taught me all the basics of life in the United States. And um, they taught me how to eat pizza, and I couldn't take it because you need, pizza is an acquired taste. And I didn't have that taste, so I gagged. And they just told me, look, if you don't eat pizza, you're dead as a vegetarian because pizza is the most common thing in New Haven. So you, start, you better start getting used to it. So they taught me how to douse the pizza in red chili flakes uh, and eat it. So the, you know, the red chili flakes and the, uh, how hot it is overpowers the taste of uh, cheese. Today, I can't live without pizza. We've come a long way, baby. But, uh, you know, I, I had to learn everything from scratch, how to um, function, how to go set up a kitchen because I moved dorms to a, a dorm with a kitchen so I could cook, cook my own food. Um, then how to make ends meet. Remember, a third of the money was work-study programs. So I worked as a receptionist in the night shift in the dorm because it paid 50 cents more. Minimum wage, I think, was two thirty-five those days. Don't look at it as two thirty-five. It was worth a lot, two thirty-five. Uh, and so I was happy to have a job which paid almost three dollars once a week. One of the colleagues of mine from the dorm would drive us to the grocery store. We'd stock up on groceries, and you know, uh, in the next week or two, we'd somehow eke out a living. Uh, I'd play bridge Saturday nights all night. It was great. Lived in a dump of a dorm at Yale, not the greatest building at all, but you know, it was all the poor international students who lived in that dorm. So we built a great community. And Yale School of Management was just an uplifting experience. I loved it. So from that point on, um, you graduated, and then you went, like you say, you worked your way up step by step through corporate America. I, again, we're capsulating a very long time period into a small, could you, how, how long would that have been? I graduated from Yale School of Management in 1980, and I became CEO in 2006. So for those 26 years, what was that, that process like? Each, were you working at a faster pace? Were you getting promotion at a faster pace than your counterparts? And were you pushing to try and get there, there faster? Like, what was that like? What was your mentality like? So 1980 to 86, I was at the Boston Consulting Group in Chicago. And BCG is a strategy consulting firm. And even though during that period I had my first child, BCG was a very supportive environment. It was a high-performance environment because you had to consult to CEOs of companies. So you had to be really good at what you did, but they were very supportive. So I think my six years at BCG was like 10 years in corporate America. I just grew in leaps and bounds. And it's not that I got promoted faster than the others. I'm learning this trade from scratch. I did well. And uh, I got recruited by Motorola uh, to come and work at Motorola. And I had a mentor in Motorola, this German guy, Gerhard Schulmeier, who was just spectacular. And most unlikely boss because, um, you know, he's tough. He demanded a high level of performance from everybody that worked with him. But if you perform well, he was your biggest supporter. So in many ways, you had to prove yourself all the time. But if you did, he was your biggest supporter. And I was lucky to have him as a supporter.
and it pushed me in ways that I'd never been pushed before. So when he left Motorola and went to Asia Baran Bavari, I followed him. So I went to ABB and he grew me even further by giving me impossible assignments, you know, building my credibility in this global company called Asia Baran Bavari. And in 1994, when he left ABB to go to Germany, I refused to follow him again. I said, I followed you eight years, Gerhard. I'm not coming to Germany. And at that time, PepsiCo recruited me out of ABB. I joined PepsiCo in 94 as head of strategy. Uh, a very tumultuous period in PepsiCo from 94 to 2000, where there was a CEO change and a lot of changes had to be made in the company, which we did. Um, in, two, in 1999, I was made the CFO of the company, which surprised me because I didn't look for that job. And I was just told one day, you're the CFO. Go ahead, take on the job, okay? Uh, in 2000, I was made president and CFO. So they added a whole bunch of stuff to me, made me a member of the board of directors. And again, I earned my way there. I didn't inherit that job, nothing. I mean, I just had to prove that I was capable of doing all this. And um, in 2006, I was truly surprised when I was told I was going to be CEO. For two reasons. One, I didn't think my boss was going to retire when he did. And second, you know, they had a lot of people to pick from. PepsiCo is a talent academy. They had a lot of people to pick from, but they picked me. If you're enjoying this conversation with Indra Nui, please consider supporting us at mulliganbrothers.com where you can get the Not A Journal on sale and the t-shirts and hoodies or buy one, get one free using code sale. Let's dive back into it. You've worked for a handful of companies and you've you know dedicated yourself to those, to those companies. Um, and it's something you'd spoken about before, about finding purpose. You know, with this, with new generation, the people who come up, they want purpose. They want, they want to feel purpose within the companies. How did you find purpose amongst those, that handful of companies that you worked for? It's a little bit of, it's a chicken and egg problem because sometimes I just go to work for a company where I felt there was a reason to get up in the morning and go to work. Other times you change the agenda of the company. So you have a reason to get up and go to work. So when you uh, think about my time at uh, Motorola, right after BCG, Motorola was making, you know, handheld devices, pagers, uh, cell phones, those days, all of the, those improved communication between people and, you know, for law enforcement, for whatever, you know, the two-way radios were essential those days. So Motorola was a technology company that was changing the world for the better. You know, it was a wonderful place to be in, great purpose. From Motorola, when I came to ABB, ABB was building power plants, transmission lines, distribution equipment, big industrial drives and motors and programmable logic controls. The wheels of manufacturing, the wheels of society turned because of companies like ABB. So you have a real desire to do well because when you see an ABB uh, electrical installation going up or a huge power plant, power plant built by ABB that provides power to big cities or towns, you have an incredible sense of accomplishment. You may not build that plant, but you're part of the company, says ABB, this was built by them, or a high-speed train or a robotics line. So all of them had a sense of purpose. So I come to PepsiCo, and yes, we provide jobs, we have a global footprint, we provide livelihoods for farmers because we're buying potatoes and things like corn from farmers. But I thought that sense of purpose needed to go beyond the jobs we created. The sense of purpose should go to, we feel so good about the products we sell. We feel so good about the fact that we don't create a very negative environmental footprint. And we feel so good about this company because everybody feels this is their company. 
I wanted everybody to have a sense of belonging about this company. And therefore, I gave birth to performance with purpose and said, look, let's think of a way to run this company which delivers great performance, but also links it to a different portfolio of products where we tweak what we're doing, where we really worry about our environmental footprint. And we create a wonderful environment for employees to bring themselves to work, their whole selves to work. So taken together, performance and purpose becomes a virtuous circle. Without performance, you can't fund purpose. Without purpose, you can't keep performance going. That was the whole idea of operationalizing purpose in a very different way than it had been before. How could someone apply that to a small business if they were starting their own small business? I think it doesn't matter what the size of the business is. You should have the notion of a profit motive. The reason is that when you have a profit as a motive, you run the company more efficiently, you think of productivity differently, you've got a, a noble goal to work towards, okay? And you become more efficient, so it's a good thing. It's how much profit and what you do with it. That's the question here, all right? So at every point when you manage a company, small or big, you should do two things. One, you should balance level and duration of returns. So should you deliver very high returns for a short while and then collapse the company and reboot it? Or should you run it for the long term where you have a steady level of returns over the long term? And that means you're thinking about reinvestment in the company, thinking about what you do to keep this company successful. How do you keep your employees happy? How do you make sure that you're running the company responsibly so you get a license to operate in every society you're in? So if companies approach their business model that way and say, I'm here for the duration, how do I keep this company reinventing itself so it can stay successful forever? Well, whatever forever means, okay? If you approach it that way, it's a whole different way to run a company than saying, let me just go as fast as I can. Who cares what happens after five or six years? I'll retire as CEO. I think that's a dreadful way to run a company. I'm going to speak to about ourselves now then, because um, Mulligan Brothers kind of became a, a company through the fact that the YouTube channel did really well, it was really popular, mm. and then we started to really push it and put structure in. And, mm-hmm. But we, we grew it through brute force of, of just pushing it as fa- fast as we could, me and my brothers and my sisters. And, and now we have employees and we have staff, and I, I look at the company now and I look to put structure in but because we never had structure and we led almost as, it's very difficult. How would I start or where, where would you start personally? So one of the biggest areas where I get a lot of calls from fledgling startups is, look, we see a line of sight to a lot of growth. What kind of foundations should we put in now so that we're not retooling the company in five years when we reach $50 million in revenue? I think it's very, very important you put in the foundations when you're small first. Second, if your sole goal is to flip the company to realize the most returns, and that's why you're running the company and running it really hard, don't bother to put in the foundations because that's not why you're building the company. Okay? You're building it to flip it. And many, 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 many small companies do that. But if you really want to build a company that lasts, you have a vested interest in its success in the future, talk to people about how to build those foundations very early. This speaks to sort of mentorship and um, throughout your career, you've had a mentor at a certain company or a certain time period who's, um, I, don't, I don't know if, it's, if it has helped you, I'm guessing, but- um, Massively. Massively. So this is what I wanna talk, talk about is, firstly, how important are mentors? 
we first have to define what is a mentor. Okay? Some people just write to me saying, will you be my mentor? Mentors are people who can promote you, who can push you, who can remove roadblocks for you. Not people who just give you a piece of advice here and a piece of advice there. Um, there are people who do that. You can call somebody and say, can you be an advisor to me? Or can you just give me a helping hand now and then? That's different. You can do that to a friend or an acquaintance. But if a real mentor should be in your realm of influence, who can figure out how to get you promoted. And when you get promoted, teach you how to adapt yourself to this new job and give you a little helping hand to pull you up or push you up. Mentors are, by definition, secure people. If you're a good mentor, because if somebody who's working for you is your mentee uh, and you really mentor them, they might take your job. But you feel good about the fact that you've mentored them enough to take your job. So mentors are a unique breed of people. And I had a lot of people who came out of the woodwork to be my mentors. I never asked anybody to be my mentor. I think mentors pick you, you don't pick them. People came out of the woodwork and said, I like what I see in her. I'm going to push her. I'm going to give her the most impossible assignments. I'm going to test her in ways that she never knew she could perform at. And if I failed, they stepped in and said, okay, this may be too much. Let me give you a different assignment. So they were also there during bad times, not just good times. I think one of the biggest responsibilities for mentees is if a mentor gives you advice and you choose not to take it, go back and tell them why you didn't take the advice. Because mentors feel very disappointed when you give them advice and you do exactly the opposite. They go, what's my role then? So I think it's a two-way street. It has to be a very respectful relationship. And all my life, I've been blessed with extraordinary mentors, extraordinary, all men uh, who've been just phenomenal in giving me advice, pushing me, pulling me, um, you know, telling me off when I didn't do things right. And I keep in touch with pretty much all of them, and I'm deeply grateful to them. You know, when I talked about winning the lottery of life in the family that I was born into, the time I was born into that family, I think in many ways these mentors also were part of this lottery of life. So I'm grateful to all of them. You must have cult cultivated it. So it, mu it must have been the th what they saw in you that you know, attracted them to you. Do, do you know what that quality is? Because I, I agree with you, we don't. I think I've heard, I've heard you say that before, is you don't pick your mentor, your mentor picks you. So if that's the case, what do you do? to attract a mentor? I'm going to give you a couple of three examples through stories, little vignettes, and then we can derive what I did from that. Um, the first is any job I did, I put the company before me. I worked really hard to do my job well, but I took whatever assignment I was given and really understood how it connected with the rest of the company. So my bosses always felt that they could trust me to get the job done way better than anybody else. So that helped. Um, the second is, um, there was a very clear proposition that I offered my bosses, which is a very important thing everybody should take away from this particular session, which is, in your job, you have to ask yourself, what is my proposition that I'm offering this company? They've got to be able to say, God, we cannot uh, you know, be good in this area if Jordan is not involved in it. Or... We're having this meeting. I know Jordan is not responsible for this area, but bring him into the meeting because he has a unique point of view. And people have to know what that unique proposition is to, that you bring to the company. 
right? In my case, it was an ability to think tangentially, bring points of view, connect dots that didn't feel obviously connected, but I would find a way to connect them and make new and interesting shapes for the company. But the best example was this German guy I used to work for at Motorola, Gerhard Schulmeier, went on to ABB. And when he first went on to ABB, I didn't join him. And he kept calling me and saying, I need somebody like you to work for me. I said, he said, could you find somebody? I said, use a headhunter and get somebody. So he called a headhunter and said, I need an Indra Nui. So the headhunter called me and said, what is an Indra Nui? I said, I don't know. I mean, that's me, but I don't know what it is. So we tried to write a job description for what I was doing for Gerhard. And I realized that the bottom line was I was making his life easier. I would take things off his plate. I would make it easy for him to go into a meeting fully prepared, even though he'd never looked at the material, because I would give him briefing papers that made his life easier. So he could work on the other parts of the company that I was not involved in. And so, again, I put him and the company before me. I focused on how to make my CEO successful. Okay? And so I think to him that was a proposition. Here is a person who works to make life better for the people around her so that the company can do better. Okay? And so you have to have a proposition that's crystal clear and everybody invites you in because of that proposition. And sometimes you may have to go outside the boundaries of your job to help others, to improve things for the company. Find a way to do it. Find a way to do it. Don't say, I don't want to get involved because it takes too much of my time or the other person may be pissed off. Give people a helping hand. If you believe they will look better if you can give them some input to do something better. And that's all I did through my entire life. That's how I made a name for myself. Was it a time commitment? Yes. Was it time away from the family? Yes. But I didn't know any other way to do the job. And that's what I think got me noticed. And people said, she's a keeper. And very often I'd get invited into meetings that I didn't belong in. Or I'd be walking across the corridor. There'd be a meeting going on. People say, Indra, join this meeting. Just, just put your head in. I'm saying before I was CEO, they just say, just come on in. Come and listen to this conversation. I'm like, it's nothing to do with me. Just come in and listen. And, you know, I'd... I wouldn't say anything at the meeting, but later on I would tell them, did you think about this or this or this? Oh, shit, we didn't think about this. So that's what I mean by saying, if you're going to add value, people want you to be on their team. The idea of doing things that are outside of your job role, you know, I think that is a big separator amongst a type of person. I think we're talking about, we spoke about this on the call we had the other yeah. day, the edge, you know, and finding that edge. What, how would you describe what the edge is? And, and how, do, how do you find and develop the edge? Insatiable curiosity comes back to that. You know, most people retire after they get their first college degree saying, I've done enough education. I actually think learning begins after you graduate from college. Because all that you've done is build the foundation. Nobody sees the foundation. They only see the house above the foundation. Right? So we don't build the bricks to build the rest of the house and complete it. And that takes a lot of work. I mean, really think about a house. You pour the foundation in two days. How long does it take to build the rest of the house? A long time. And I think people forget to build everything brick by brick and build the roof and all the architectural details. There's a lot of work to do. And that requires work on a steady basis through your entire career. Watching other people do the jobs, watching other people communicate, watching people analyze problems 
watching people present to a board or a senior management group and get buy-in. How do they do it? Look at each interaction with people different from you as a learning moment. And make notes for yourself. What did I take away from that interaction? What can I learn? What can I adopt from what I just saw? Look at failures. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? What did they do wrong? What could have been done better? Don't bask in sort of uh, uh, glee because somebody failed. Tell yourself, God, for the company, it's not good that this person failed. How do we make sure it doesn't happen for the company again? So have that sensitivity and sensibility in you. I'm thinking about the time you, you had your second child. Mm. You know, you, you, you're in a really high-performing role. And you would have, you know, you're probably doing things for the outside your job role as well and extending, extending yourself all the time. Were there moments of frustration and, and difficulty? And how did you deal with those moments? When you have two children, your responsibilities grow exponentially. And with two girls at home, you know, um, when you're married, you've got a husband also to worry about. And usually husbands get relegated to the bottom of the list because you're so busy doing other things. And the jobs you're doing, it's not just one job. It's multiple, uh, the equivalent of multiple jobs every time you move up a pyramid. Okay? It takes a lot of your time to do it well. And so it was a constant juggling act. You've got to build a support structure around you and hope that the support structure never lets you down any time. Back up for childcare. Family that comes in to help so that if your nanny doesn't show up, they're still there to take care of the kids. Uh, you know, the great thing about being Asian of Indian origin, family stepped in to help. Without that family help, I couldn't have done it. I picked the right spouse. He helped. And uh, the family helped. And without that infrastructure, I couldn't have done what I did. So again, I won the lottery of life there, that I had a family that was willing to step in. And they were proud of what I did. They never once said, quit your job and stay home. It's your responsibility. They said, what can we do to help you? When you're juggling all these things, inevitably you're going to drop. You're going to, you're going to drop one of them every so often. And like, if it was your husband or if it was the children, how did you deal with the idea of like guilt for you know maybe putting towards a focus on the business side of things? And I know I think you've just said it because they supported you, so it didn't really matter. They didn't want you to not do what you were doing. But I'd love to hear your opinion on it. The fact of the matter is, when you have multiple priorities, life is one big juggling act. Balls will fall on the floor and break. You just hope it's not the most important things that fall and break. Or if they fall and break, grieve over it a little bit, but pick yourself up because people are waiting for you to carry on. You can't take extended you know, time for grieving. You've got to carry on. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, men don't have as many balls they juggle, okay, because they always had a stay-at-home wife that took care of everything. Today, the dynamics are changing. And so I think we have to get into a mode where we say, family is family, it's not female. We have to stop the statement about family is female, it's your problem, worry about it. I think both members of the family should come together and say, how do we together set priorities and manage this family? That way the burden is not always on the woman, because if that's the case, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that mental distress in women goes up exponentially, and we wonder why. Because they have far too much on their plate. Uh, and so I think we have to be much more sensitive to it and families have to come together and work on children and priorities and allow everybody to have a paid job so that you can build the family wealth and have a nest egg when you retire. 
I put here that you had community. You had, you know, you had um, people around you that you help with their children, they help with your children and things like that. But if, if that doesn't exist, what is the reality of childcare at the moment and, and where are the issues and where can we fix them? If we don't, as countries, states, communities, think about organized childcare, high quality childcare that's available, affordable, of high quality, we won't, two problems will happen. Either people won't have kids or the kids will have trouble growing up properly because there wouldn't be a system to take care of them well. But the fact of the matter is countries need all able bodies and able brains to be engaged in paid work because we have jobs for them. And we want the most talented people to come to work. And a lot of the women are very hungry these days. They're getting all the top grades. They want economic freedom. They want a paid job. They want to be able to save themselves and build a nest egg for their future. And why deprive them of contributing to the paid economy? I mean, the competitive advantage of any entity is its talent. Why shut out a large group of the talent just because you can't put in something like a childcare infrastructure? Why do we put in gyms in offices but don't think of childcare just like a gym? Okay, so I think we ought to think about the country and say the country needs kids. Without kids, there's no future. We need a birth rate that is replacement. We need an infrastructure system that supports young family builders to have families and contribute to paid work. And we want the best and brightest to come to work. If you start with those first principles, you will put in the childcare system. For, for people trying to get into sort of uh, business entrepreneurship, like, especially when we're talking about young people, um, what is the biggest obstacle that they'll face right now? You know, for anybody to want to be an entrepreneur or a business person, you've got to have an idea that has got some commercial value. You've got to have somebody who teaches you the ropes. Too often young people get into a business, they have a model that looks very jazzy on paper but does not have any revenue or profit potential. And then they hope they can price it to concept. So it's not price to profits or price to revenue, price to concept and sell out, sell out to somebody else. All these app developers, hundreds of app developers who say, I'm just going to develop this app so I can sell it. That's not the way to build a business. If you want to build a business, you've got to have some line of sight to revenues and profits. And then you build a business. Build it to some scale before you flip it. And if you want to do that, you need to have adult supervision with you. Young people are all great. It goes back to something we talked about earlier. Take the idea get some adult supervision to work with you to build the foundation of the company. And then build the bricks as you go along. Don't wait for your idea to take root and then say, oh God, I have no research laboratories, I have no food safety laboratories and I'm building a food company. It doesn't work. You're going to get sued and you're going to have to shut down if you don't have all the food safety backbones in place. So I think upfront you've got to bring seasoned people in to help you think through what do you need to put in place so that if your business grows, you're not creating a problem. I'll give you the best example, Jordan. Many years ago, we bought a company called Sobe. It was a beverage company. And Sobe had an iconic lizard as a, a logo, a beautiful-looking glass bottle. And the names of their beverages would have sort of funny names, which are very interesting, and young people loved it. Um, one product, which was sort of a low-sugar alternative, uh, Sobe Lean, had a subline which said liquid liposuction. 
Okay? Sounds interesting, right? So we buy it at PepsiCo. And now, do you think we'd be allowed to say liquid liposuction? No. So as a startup company, they could do all that. But when it came to PepsiCo, we couldn't. So all of a sudden, all of those lines are gone, and there's no more concept, because Sobe was this liquid liposuction or something else concept. But it was a concept not rooted in science. And we were suckers to buy it, I'll be honest with you. In retrospect, I wish we hadn't bought it. I take full responsibility for it. But I come back and say, if Sobe had only built the foundation differently, okay, they'd have gotten much more value for this business and would still be lasting today. Now it doesn't, you know, it's not around. A lot of the things we're talking about right now are practical steps. And I think this is a great example of how somebody can use these and implement them into their, into their career. But one thing I would love to speak about is your boldness and like, especially like Pepsi, you know, the switch from sugar to diet and all those kind of things. How did you develop that, you know, to, to take risk, to take chances, to have a boldness when you, when you move? Like, what was it that, that, um, that developed that? And also, how would you recommend somebody goes about developing that? How important is it to be bold? Is it better to be conservative with these kind of things? There are two kinds of disruptions you can do in any company, inside out or outside in, okay? Um, inside out is when you have a real problem with your business and you have to change something in order to drive the business again, okay? Um, inside out is almost like you've discovered a technology and you have to find a use for it. So you just put it in there and hope it sells. A lot of the electronics companies do that. They find a technology and say, let's give it a ride and pretty soon the market is created. And outside is when you look at a consumer survey and say there's a dissatisfaction here or there's an unmet need here. How do I fill that? Okay. Um, Diet Pepsi, Pepsi Max predated me. Okay. On the one hand, you had this breakthrough of aspartame as a sweetener way back in 1983 or 85. I worked on it for G.D. Searle when, who was making aspartame. So I came full circle. All right. I worked on the ingredient. So when we had an ingredient breakthrough at GD Soil, company said, hey, now I can develop a whole line of zero-calorie beverages with a non-nutritive sweetener. Okay, so you took a technology and created a diet business. On the other hand, outside in is, hey, I'm seeing consumers shift their eating and drinking habits to healthier products. What can I do to create a portfolio of healthier products? That's an outside-in transformation. So you've got to have your antenna out to look at consumer trends, what's going on outside, look horizontally at technology trends that are going to impact you, and then look at the company and say, hey, is any business headed for uh, a problem? What do I need to do to transform it so to make sure it doesn't get into the doldrums? So your 360 view has to be very, very sharp. And you've got to be looking all over the place to make sure that you, know, you don't miss any signals anywhere. That's what makes a good CEO, a good leader. How, how have you dealt with failures? I've had many failures, okay? And if I uh, said that I didn't have failures, I'd be lying. But failures make you stronger if you choose to learn from them. You can go to school on why you failed. Not just why you failed. When somebody else failed, why did they fail? Go to school. Put the steps down of what they did. Which step was done wrong? Where did they miss something? Use it as a teachable moment. Don't just say, oh my God, I failed and grieve and then go on to the next failure. Because if you don't learn from this failure, you'll commit the same mistake again. 
You've got to grieve. I mean, grieving is human. You've got to grieve. If I told you, oh, just brush it off, then you really don't care. I want you to care. Care enough to learn from what went wrong and then make sure it doesn't happen again. So you've got to have that courage to go back and learn from things, as opposed to who should I blame? That's a terrible, terrible thing to do. Don't ask who should I blame. Just ask yourself what went wrong. Different mindset. At the time where, or if it's the same now, fantastic, but at the time where you were um, really focused on the idea of moving up the corporate ladder, what was your morning routine? What did that look like? So I'm not a poster child for routines. So don't use my morning routine or night routine or whatever. Uh, it's an unusual one. I don't sleep much. I'm one of those genetic people who would struggle to sleep. So the advantages, I could get by on four or five hours of sleep. So it gave me 19 to 20 hours to read, work, do other things. Second, I speed read. So I can go through documents, huge documents fast and retain them and somehow connect them in my head. So this combination of speed reading, connecting dots and not sleeping enough gave me these wonderful, uh, valuable hours to be able to do a lot more than anybody else could do. So, you know, I'd usually be up by four or five, have my cup of coffee and plow through a lot of reading material, get to work by eight, drop my kids off in school, go to work. I'd be at work till about six, come back home, dinner with the kids, help with homework, start reading again go to bed around midnight. That was a routine I kept right through my working life. In retrospect, sounds awfully tiring. But I gave up everything that was personal, meaning going to ball games or going to shows. I gave up all that. I just worked. Worked, the, you know, worried about the kids, the family. Just worked. That's it. Just those priorities. Family, kids, work. Did you ever feel a need to fulfill yourself with you know, socials and do, no, doing nice things for yourself? No, never. I mean, didn't feel the need to. I'm not a party person. I'm not a going out person. I was very comfortable with this ecosystem of work and this bubble I lived in. I had to travel. I traveled a lot. Loved that too. But I always longed to come home. A question I ask almost all the guests is, what do you feel like the meaning of life is or the purpose of life is? No, I didn't choose to come into this world. Somebody put me into this world. And I think we're all in this world for such a short time. How many ever years you live is still short versus overall, um, you know, uh, humanity. I think that you've got to think about contributing the most in the time that you're on the earth. And so my goal is uh, at every point in time, what can I give back? So even if I've, after I've retired, I'm working a lot on how can I give back to my community, to the state, to the country? Um, that's all I'm thinking about. You know, I've done enough for upgrading all the educational institutions I went to school and rebuilt the laboratories, whatever. I was teaching at the U.S. Military Academy. Um, I do a lot for mentoring young people. So it's all in your head about what, how do you want to be remembered? Nobody remembers you for the money you made. They remember you for what a difference you made to society or communities or whatever. So that's all I care about right now. And there you go, the amazing conversation with Indra Nui. When I spoke to Indra, um, obviously I, I run Mulligan Brothers, the, the business side of things, and there's so many questions I, I wanted to ask. And as I asked them, I realized that 
she is on a different level, a different plane of thinking. And I started to realize that that's a huge, huge difference in extremely successful entrepreneurs and business people is they have this higher level of thinking. And, and as I asked the questions, as you may have heard in some of them, and she responded, the answers were coming from a completely different perspective. And for me, that's the biggest takeaway I had from this is I need a a shift in my thinking, my sh a shift in my leadership, a shift in the way I do business. I, I also need to then implement these ideas. But if you listen to these ideas, that was knowledge and wisdom from a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And um, she's now an advisor for so many different businesses and so many different companies. The This is for the big version of your dreams. You know, these these messages and lessons she, she's given you, they're not for getting off the ground. Although there was a, some great lessons in there for getting off the ground, but really try and implement a lot of these as you're flowing in business, as you're moving forward to your goals. Um, use it from your perspective, but also try and have that shift in thinking. Think differently, like, for her to be where she 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 was and, and how high she got, she had to think differently. She had to think outside of the box. And that was the incredible Indra Nui. What a wonderful person as well, By I, I must add. Off camera, she was absolutely wonderful, had lots of time for us. Um, and she was rushing in between events and she managed to squeeze it in. So she was absolutely amazing. Guys, I need your help. We're launching the podcast officially. We will be doing a sit-down set and a... a something that is repeatable, something that where people can come and visit us in the UK and um, sit on the podcast. And we need your guys' help. We need um, a suggestion. Should we call it the Inspire Change podcast? Should we call it Inspire Change Show with Jordan Mulligan? Or should we call it Mulligan Brothers? Keep it as Mulligan Brothers. We need to know. Let Drop me a message on Instagram at Jordan Mulligan Brother. And thank you so much for all the support we've had so far. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast episode, uh, drop me a message. I, I, I need feedback. I, 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 I thrive on feedback. I want to make this the greatest podcast of all time. Yes, that's all order. No, we're no way near there. We're not even, we're just a fledgling podcast right now, thriving off our, our audience through YouTube. And I want to expand into the world of podcasting um, in a massive way because I think the way in which we deliver the message and the meaning, the inspired change message is super important and um i think we can do that but i need your help so anyway guys thank you for supporting us if you want to support us some more you can head over to mulliganbrothers.com where the not a journal is heavily discounted right now because of the end of summer sale and you can get the uh t-shirts and hoodie vests and everything buy one get one free using code sale at checkout anyway have a blessed and productive day and i'll see you in the next one peace